Welcome to Season 2 of Typecast, Boston's new play podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Evans, the Managing Director of Boston Playwrights Theatre, the home for new plays in Boston. In this podcast series, we are diving deep into the new play ecosystem of Beantown, talking with playwrights, directors, actors, and theater makers of all types about bringing new plays into the world. On today's episode, we would like to welcome two expert guests in this area, Bridget O'Leary and Karen Perlow. We are super psyched to talk to them today about the design process of new plays, as well as their roles in new productions around Boston. First up, Bridget Kathleen O'Leary. Bridget is a freelance director, dramaturg, and theater educator who got her MFA in directing right here at Boston University. And currently, she is directing BPT's upcoming production of Jado Jihad. And we are so excited to be opening that show on February 16. Prior to becoming a well-known name throughout the Boston theater community, Bridget worked with a variety of companies in Washington, D.C. Around town, she's directed productions with companies such as Speakeasy Stage Company, New Repertory Theater, Actors Shakespeare Project, the Nora Theater Company, Underground Railway Theater, and of course, right here at home at BPT. Additionally, Bridget is a theater educator who teaches at Tufts University and Northeastern University. And our second guest today is Karen Perlow. Karen is a lighting designer who has worked on over 200 productions here in Boston. For more than 25 years, she has worked with companies such as Lyric Stage Company, Central Square Theater, Merrimack Rep, Boston Symphony Orchestra, Gloucester Stage, and of course, also has designed productions right here at BPT. Like Bridget, Karen also teaches design at area universities such as MIT and Northeastern, and has been a guest designer at Boston College, Emerson College, Brandeis University, and Boston Conservatory at Berkeley. In addition, Karen serves as treasurer of the Theater Community Benevolent Fund, a charity we support every year here at BPT through the Boston Theater Marathon. Uh, welcome to Typecast, Bridget and Karen. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. So excited to dig into new plays and design with both of you. Can't think of two better people to do it with. So uh, that's our topic today, directing and designing new plays. So I just want to orient our audience a little bit, give them some experience. Um, tell us a little bit, uh, maybe we'll start with you, Bridget, and then go to Karen after. What are some new plays, world premieres that you have worked on? What are some that you have worked on together? And um, maybe tell us about a new play experience that had a big impact on you in some way. One of the plays that comes to mind that was really important to me at the time, but also the ways in which, because we're talking about design, the way in which design and new play development really overlapped in a significant way was Jennifer Barclay's Right Frenzy, which I did for New Repertory Theater in partnership with Boston University. So I was working with BU designers. That play was a written between uh, the projection designer, but it was a partnership between the playwright and the projection designer. They wrote together with the idea that this design element of projections was another character in the play. 
So before we even started rehearsals, the, this design element was really, really present and very specific and very necessary. That play also came to me as part of a commission proposal that the National New Play Network was doing. I participated in the adjudication of it. And it was one of those plays that I read and I immediately fell in love with. So immediately there's this, you know, you put the play down and you go, I have to direct this. And so I was very fortunate to do the premiere production of it. And uh, it was a rolling world premiere. So there were other productions across the country that got to take place as well, but mine was first. So Jennifer and I were working together for about a year on the development of that, which included bringing actors in to work on the text. So getting to bring that play to life was something that was really special because we were discovering what was working and what wasn't working through the rehearsal process. And certainly during the tech process, when all of the other elements got added, the story that was being told was constantly growing and shifting and changing as we were discovering more and more throughout the process. Love that. That's pretty unusual to have a playwright and a designer working together on a script. Or in my experience, it's kind of unusual. That sounds incredible. Karen, what about you? Some new play experiences that stand out for you? Yeah, my most recent new play experience was Mr. Parent that was workshopped for a while, uh, had a video production during the pandemic through New Hartford Theater Works, I think it's called, and then had a full production at the Lyric Stage Company of Boston. And unlike Bridget's experience, this play had the writer, the playwright, and the actor of whom the story was biographical as a triumvirate for many years before designers came in. And I saw the video stream production before I even knew I was ever going to be involved with it, which was really interesting, you know, it backstory, because it was the kind of story that didn't, I, as watching Maury's parent do it, I thought, well, this doesn't need anything other than a man sitting in a chair telling us the story, of course. And then, you know, a year and a half later, oh, I'm designing it. So um, maybe we'll flesh it out some. So it's interesting being a fresh set of eyes and a new artist looking at a piece through their own discipline, right, of whether it's scenic and costume or lighting design and absorbing all the work and the previous incarnations that have happened before you and what is the thing that you can add? How can you amplify the story through your own specific discipline? Following up on that, Karen, I'm wondering if that approach, uh, uh, you know, what can I add? Is it, does it differ for you if there's a uh, the playwright is in the room and the script might change, for example, than if you're working on just a, you know, a, a done deal, scripted, locked in script. Do you do anything different as a lighting designer? I don't know so much that I do anything different, but there's sort of the understanding in the back of everybody's head involved on a new play that nothing is too precious because we might spend, you know, three hours working on a moment and then we come back in the next day and it's been decided, you know what, we're going to cut that whole scene. And so maybe through the three hours of working on it, it became apparent that there's a problem with it. And, and the tweaking that we're all doing has only shown everybody or made it more explicit that maybe it's 
it's not the lighting of the scene or it's not you know the the portrayal of the the actor but it's the actual material itself and so that's a little bit different because with a published piece i mean yes you may you know cut bits here and there if it's in the what's that expression in the public domain thank you in the public domain but ordinary and and maybe a a a a design element or a a series of cues might get cut for whatever reason, but whole chunks of the play are not going to be removed the next time you walk into the room. So that um, fully committing to amplifying the material and at the same time knowing maybe this isn't really the final version of this script and maybe this part of the story is, is not necessary enough to stay in throughout this version of the production. Can I add to that though, Darren? Please. Because, you know, what Karen's saying about the idea that not being precious, I also think something that's really magical about design with a new play, when I'm in a room working with a designer and the play is new, the component that exists, that is, I think the most important is that the playwright has never seen the actualization of their play before. So what designers are bringing in and how we are working together to tell the story. And the player is often very much involved in those design elements. But I have seen design impact what happens with the play. Like I have been in rooms where the playwright experiences a choice that a designer is making and it absolutely changes that moment for them in a really positive way that impacts every other production of the play afterwards. Like they will actually change an element based on a positive experience with design or information that they receive as a result of design. And that to me, when, you know, getting to be in a space with Karen, um, Karen is creating, I love that you're saying amplifying. She's amplifying those moments in a way that the playwrights have never gotten to interact with before. And that's pretty amazing. And that is a real gift, definitely, because there's no preconceived notion and maybe no, as you were saying, the playwright never saw something this way, but me reading the material, incorporating it through my own experiences and an interpretation, see something and then, yeah, magic. Absolutely. I'd love to follow up on that too, uh, specifically talking about having the playwright in the rehearsal process and the idea that something through design or or through acting choices or or through the director or something, something is changing and evolving over the course of a rehearsal process. You know, from an audience perspective, you buy a ticket, you go see a show, and you it's it's a thing and it's done. And in their you know in their mind, it's it's a static thing. But in the rehearsal room, it's definitely. I want to hear what you have to say about this. It's potentially not static at all, and things are potentially changing and adjusting and the playwright is there responding and making adjustments like you mentioned that that can be a gift right like something is going right and there's and uh i imagine also that sometimes it can be not a gift maybe it's difficult sometimes because there's too many changes or have you run into that or like how do you decide like when are you done (laughs) making changes in in a design or even in like uh, directing choices and like now we have to move on how do you make that decision and who makes it is it the playwright is it the director is it the designer that's really interesting um back years and years and years ago when i was my own lightboard operator 
for a show that I had designed, it was never frozen because I would always tweak it because I was sitting there watching it, you know, and it was so far back that it was a two scene preset. So I would do those things because, you know, I was in one week stock in the summer. But a lot of times I think the calendar is what dictates things that if you're going to have a live audience on X date and you have 17 more pages of script or whatever, you know, some of it is just like, it's done for now. And if we have time to go back on it, we will. Or if anybody has any real great insights from now to then, we'll maybe get back to it. And sometimes, you know, it's just like, we never really had the time to do it. And that's, yeah, it's sadly good enough. And I think that's for either new plays or pre-produced productions. To hop on that, I, I agree with Karen that it really doesn't, um, the when are we done designing? I mean, I've had I've had lighting designers on opening night come and change the, the timing of a cue because we all felt like it dragged or it needed more time in the opposite direction. So I don't think that that when is it done shifts. I think that one of the problems <clears throat> that we just have in this country is Everybody, I do think a lot of theater companies right now are tapping into the new play ecology and wanting to, you know, leave their mark and and be able to participate in in positive ways. It still does not give us, we, we never have enough time. And I don't think that, I think we're constantly missing steps in our development processes that allow playwrights to live with the play on its feet as we're discovering it. So part of what I think impacts design is that we get to rehearsal and the way that theater works with relationship design is oftentimes when you get to first rehearsal, the set is already being built. So when you're working on a new play and you're getting to a moment of discovery, you are sometimes somewhat limited on how far that that discovery can go simply because they can't go back and and rebuild something or I mean we can cut something but it's hard to add and that kind of stuff. I think sound and lights are in a have a lot more freedom to be agile when it comes to that. But I do think that part of part of the step that we miss is involving designers way, 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 like in the writing process. Like when when the play is being written, bring designers in so they can start having a relationship and an influence in terms of how the playwright is seeing and experiencing their own work. But then also at some point we need to figure out that if we are really going to make an investment in new work that is earnest that we are really committed to that, then we also have to understand that a six-week process isn't enough. Um, so when major design elements do have to shift, a lot of times it's because of lack of preparation on a theater company's part um, or a development organization's part uh, that wasn't giving us enough time to figure something out so that when we went into the design process, we had more information. Bridget, you mentioned the National New Play Network earlier and your involvement in there. You've devoted a lot of time and energy to supporting new work in your career. I, I, I think of you and new work together as the thing. Like when I think of Bridget in my head, I think of, oh yeah, developing new work. Um, why? Why are new plays important to the theater, to a local theater community, to a larger? Why do you do that? Because I hate Shakespeare. This um, <laughs> 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 is my rebellion. Um, from all the Shakespeare classes I took in undergrad. I always want to have a really good answer to how I got involved in new work. And part of, part of it really is that when you are a director starting out, if you, if you somehow decide 
that you, this is who you are and work begets work, right? So no one's going to hire you without seeing your work or having an idea that you have enough experience under your belt, at least on paper, to justify giving you that job. And when you're starting out, the only real opportunities that you are offered is either come in and direct this reading. And sometimes it's, you know, parade, parade an old work in front of people as a fundraising opportunity. And oftentimes it's, it's a new work or, Hey, come direct for the Boston theater. Yes. Come direct for the 24 hour play project or the tea plays that I, I miss the tea yeah, plays so much. That was such a wonderful fringe theater company that hosted new work. So, so a younger version of me, that is what happened. That is, I was just doing it because that was what I had to do. And so working with playwrights really from the, almost the, almost the beginning of my directing career, that was how I knew how to work. And so when I would get in the room and they wouldn't be there, the absence of their voice, that absence of that collaboration was, was real. And when I was in graduate school at BU, it's actually Kate Snodgrass. I, I will tell people that Alana Brownstein, who's an incredible dramaturg and an advocate in the Boston area, Alana Brownstein taught me how to read plays. Kate Snodgrass taught me how to listen to them. And when, when I was a graduate student, we would be brought in to work with the MFA playwriting students. And we would once a month get together and they would give us some actors and we'd get in a room together and we would work on their plays. And then I would, you know, after I did that, I would go back into a rehearsal room where I was rehearsing a Sarah Kane play or, you know, a Brian Friel play or something old and tried and true. And I realized that when I was talking to playwrights about their plays, and then I went back to do established work, I understood the structure and format of established work more. And now that's sort of symbiotic. I feel like it is the more I work on established plays to understand what works and what doesn't work, what activates them, how do we how do we look at the conflict and the and the the action of the play? When I'm when I'm studying that and I go back into a room with a playwright, I also feel like I have a deeper vocabulary to be able to talk about that experience. So for me it's it's a love of collaboration, it's a love of storytelling. And I'm just so curious about what is underneath everything. And so starting at the source is something that feeds me. And then also being able to support, you know, none of us, we don't get to be on this podcast today if playwrights didn't write plays. And I think sometimes we forget, we forget that. And so if I can celebrate and support the people who make sure that I can go to work every day and have, and have something to, to latch onto and bring to life, then I want to be there to support them as much as possible. Love that. Which leads us to our commercial break. We're going to take a pause here to check in with this month's sponsor. So stick with us for a moment. We are going to pause for a second. And when we come back, we've got some more questions for Karen and Bridget. And of course, our fabulous game at the end of today's episode. So we'll be right back. Have you been feeling out of touch with the younger generation of workers? Are you wondering what's up with your Gen Z employees recording dance moves in the break room? Do you get concerned when your young coworkers talk about slaying all day? To bridge this ever-widening technological and cultural gap, the wizards at InTouch have created a product that helps older generations understand internet culture with the simple press of a button. CultAid is a small device that attaches to the back of your ear, translating and explaining what the hell those kids are doing and talking about in real time. 
Need to understand what the latest memes mean? Cult Aid has you covered. When they call you Chugi, is that really a compliment? Cult Aid can help. And it looks just like a hearing aid, so they'll have no clue you're getting outside assistance, allowing you to remain exceptionally dank. Side effects of Cult Aid include weird accents, imposter syndrome, insomnia, pyromania, popcorn lung, temporary blindness, green finger, autotune, too much swag, and tummy issues. Cult Aid by In Touch. Never be out of touch again. Welcome back, everyone. We are here with director and new play magician Bridget O'Leary and Mistress of Light Karen Perlow talking about new plays, directing, and design. Karen, for you, question for you. Um, when you are working on a lighting design for a new play, what information do you, do you ideally want from the playwright? Anything? Are you taking all your cues from the director? How do you interact with a playwright uh, who's you know involved in the process? Question, and I, I, I guess I really don't have much interaction with the playwright, and it's more channeled through the director. And so, speaking to Bridget's comment about how great it would be if the designers were involved earlier on, I I echo that because it it does feel in a way like a missed opportunity. Like there's that person over there who created the thing, but I'm talking to this person over here who's already channeling it through their own world, mind, methods. So I don't know that I I have a good answer for that because I don't feel that I really been in communication with the playwrights of the new plays unless it's a playwright who's also the director then of course that's an easier step because there they are all right that is a good answer just because it doesn't happen doesn't mean it's not a good answer <laughs> though i want to push back on karen's response a little bit because yeah go get uh, it when i when i was out in Europe uh, and i was running a playwriting group there every year I would invite teams of designers to come in. Oh, yeah. That's right. Um, Karen's like remembering this now. Yeah. I would invite designers from the Boston area and I would I would assemble like what I would call the dream team, which Karen was always on the dream team. I would bring in a dream team of, of, of designers and we would uh, like cater a lunch for them. One time it was a barbecue at my house, but we would bring them up and set up tables with playwrights and complete design teams and had the playwrights listen to the designers talk to them about how they were experiencing their work. Because I do think that we are all trained. I I don't think that we're all siloed, but I do think that we all, whatever we're leaning more towards. So I lean more towards directing, right? So when I'm reading plays, I am reading them from a directing perspective and designers, I think are trained to see things and experience and hear things in the play that maybe we don't pick up on. So little clues that come up for them, listening to designers tell playwrights what they think their plays about and what they see and how they experience it. And the design and the playwright just has to listen is, is pretty incredible. It's, and also, again, I have seen how those conversations then impact the, the plays as they continue to be written. The very first year I did it, there was one moment that I would have said was a dramaturgically inconsistent moment in a play that uh, James McLinden was writing. And I love James's writing. And there was just this one moment where he was solving a problem with a lighting effect was like all of a sudden the lights were supposed to change to communicate something, but it never, ever happened again. And so him listening to the lighting, sound, and scenic designers say, 
oh, when this happened, this is what I thought it was, or this is what I thought it was. And he was able to see for himself that this moment was confusing to people and didn't tell the story he wanted to tell. And he completely changed. Like that moment completely altered by the time it got put in front of an audience. So, uh, and Karen was always a person that I brought in because I think that Karen brings beauty and complexity to worlds that maybe you don't even know that beauty exists within them, but she is able to take even even the harshest, and, and not just on my plays and other things I've seen, but she takes the, even the harshest of environments and knows how to find a moment of beauty in it. And I think that that's something that when playwrights are experiencing their work, they can see the world through Karen's eyes. And I do think it absolutely impacts the story that they're telling. Thank you. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about that, Bridget. I'm so sorry. You're absolutely right. But I can't remember any detail enough from those meetings, although those were really fun and satisfying. And it was neat to be in the room with early career playwrights and and give them, I'm like, this is what I'm seeing or hearing or visualizing. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah. I want to get a little specific, Bridget, with you and possibly a dangerous question. You are right now in the middle of rehearsing a brand new play for us at BPT, Jado Jihad by Fatima A. Man. Um, and not even in tech yet, so still in the rehearsal room. I'm I'm interested in how's how's the design process going? Have you faced any design obstacles? Have you have you overcome them yet? Like wh what's it going with that particular show design-wise? For various reasons that I don't need to go into, it this this play has found many iterations of itself even prior to my existence in the process. And I think that the aha moment of this story came relatively late. Um, no, I want to reframe that. I don't think that it came late because I think that plays are birthed in the time, like, you know, we can induce a baby, but I, I think inducing a play before it's ready to be birthed uh, is a dangerous thing to do. So we often try to, to give the playwright as much space as they need to to find it and and I think that we were very well served in the rehearsal room by by the space and time that Fatima was taking to find the truth the truth in this text but what actually happened as a result of that is that the design team didn't get the script until it was probably right around Thanksgiving for a play that was going to rehearsals on January 24th. And for anyone who's listening to this podcast that doesn't know the timeline of things, we usually are about six months out of a, of a rehearsal process starting when we start having all of the conversations about imagining the world of this play. So that, as I said, by the time you're going to rehearsals, the set has already been built, like it's being built. And this was not that, which meant that we were really late in pulling everything together. I am in awe of every single designer on the show for the expediency in which they were able to show up without sacrificing their own creativity. I think that uh, Scenic definitely was, was under the most amount of pressure, but also, you know, in November, all of a sudden there was a new character introduced. So Akeem's now going to figure out how to costume design that. And we're looking at, you know, there was a poetic element of the play that's not there anymore, which means as we're thinking about transitions, our approach to that is going to change. 
And also the absence of the poetry also indicates this a style shift in storytelling. We're now a little bit less out of the magical realism and more solidified in realism. So a lot of that stuff was happening. And I imagine it impacted the design team greatly, though they are all incredibly professional and had all signed up to do a new work. So nobody is nobody's complaining to my face. Uh, but yeah, we just, um, I would say as of Sunday, the play has settled into itself. So what we're going to find is the more that we're on our feet, the reordering of lines, the cutting of moments. I don't think that anything major is going to shift for the designers. And I, yeah, I guess I, sound and lights carry the brunt of this of this because they're the elements that we have the most flexibility to change. But yeah, this this process, we were late getting started. I think that the design team then had to race towards uh, a result so that we could get started. But again, I, you know, I held my breath as we were waiting on the draft, knowing that there were a lot of people that were getting stressed out about it. But then the minute it got into everyone's hands, they activated um, in, in a way that I marvel at. And, and we've, we, I am having a good time. I won't speak for the rest of the team, but I'm having a good time. That makes me happy to hear that. Um, from the perspective of a, a designer and a director, so I want to hear from both of you on this one. If there were, were one thing that you would want playwrights to know or understand before finishing or sending you their scripts that you're going to work on, what would it be? Like, is there something that uh, drives you crazy that, oh, you just wish playwrights would do this or something that you always want to hang on to in a script uh, that you want to make sure the playwrights know about? This is my way of helping our, uh, our playwright listeners to like uh, how to formulate their, their, their plays for someone like you guys. Well, I have a kind of funny answer that I feel like in almost every play, there's a note by the playwright that says transition should be quick and fluid. Um, versus, and I'm like, damn, if you hadn't told me that I was going to make it stodgy and slow and, you know, <laughs> clunky. Um, but I'm going to leave it to, to Bridget for a real more serious answer. Well, let me ask you, let me, let me just follow up before Bridget gets in there. Like, Karen, do you like a lot of sort of stage direction stuff in a play? Does that help you? Does that, does that uh, stifle your creativity as a designer, for example? I guess it depends on the kind of material. When I was teaching lighting design, I would always ask my students to distinguish between notes that a playwright has written and notes that a stage manager has written and nothing against stage management because they are fabulous, essential members of the team. But if it's something a playwright has written, that is meat of the play. And if it's something that a stage manager has written, it may be that the first time they did this, you know, John crossed down stage lift and lit a cigarette, you know, but that's not really important to the the story of the play. That's just what happened that time. So just separating that in everybody's mind. But um I I it's hard to say with the stage sometimes I think design uh, direct playwrights can get a little um stage direction didactic but if if it's a non-linear piece and there's a little hint of like this is what's going on I will certainly grab onto that because it might be like what you know and I just have to read something three times and then there's that little thing of he's talking to himself or whatever I'm like oh okay or you know referring to you know this character or that 
prop or something that just lets me go, oh, okay, I get it, because it wasn't apparent without that piece of scenic direction. I will say, Darren, to your question, though, I think that it is no longer the case that when we're getting copies of scripts that the adage of an acting edition has stage management notes. I do think that that used to exist. I don't think that that's how it works anymore. And I think you have to know how to decipher the difference between I don't I, I there is a misunderstanding that direct, that players are trying to direct or proof their plays by putting in a whole bunch of stage directions. And that may be true. I mean, I do think that there are ways in which playwrights work is abused in the theater and players are doing whatever they can to make sure that doesn't happen. But I think that there is a difference between stage directions that playwrights are putting in because as they're writing, they have to be able to visualize the story and the page is the only place that they have to do that. And so sometimes there are stage directions and this is happening in Jado Jihad a lot. Like Fatima is advocating for the moments where she's like, no, this is actually is important to me versus you know, the way the way in which in order for her to write this, she had to create a home in her mind that we can't replicate on stage for for lots of reasons. So I think in terms of how how um, much control a playwright is trying to have over the physical and visual life of their play, it, it varies. And I, I think I think it's just time and experience that lets you know when you're in the middle of it, which side of it the the stage direction falls on is it is it for imagery or is it really part of anchoring the story what i want playwrights to know beyond the fact that think about uh you want you want really quick transitions but you're doing a complete costume change at the end of every scene those things are in conflict to each other but what i really want a playwright to know is that they're not alone uh, so much of of how we work in the theater is that a group of us create a community and come into a room together and work on a story. And the design team is always present for us, you know, because there were, they're my first collaborator as a director. When I'm, when I don't have a play right there, their work is supporting what we're doing in the room. We get to tack all of that. We all have each other. And I think that there is this misunderstanding that playwrights are supposed to be in front of a screen or standing or, you know, sitting with a notebook and creating all of this on their own. And designers are resources. The, the opportunity to share your work, to get other perspectives, and it doesn't have to be finished to do that. Give me the messiest draft you have and ask me what I'm picking up from it. Ask me how I'm experiencing it. Hand it to Karen and tell her to read it and, and ask her to imagine what is she seeing? What does this world feel like to her? They don't have to get to a final draft before they include other people in their process. Yes, be very you know, protective about who you're inviting in, because I do know that there are a lot of people out there that think that their job is to help you write your play. And that's not what I'm suggesting, but I'm suggesting that use, use our backgrounds and where we're coming from as resources to help you find your way in. That's what I want them to know. Amazing. It's great to hear from both of you about new plays, but of course we also brought you here to play a game. So this is a podcast about new plays and writing so our games are frequently based around writing and language, and that is true today as well. We're going to play our own little version with you, pit, pitting these two titans of new plays against each other in our own kind of version of Balderdash. So here's how it's going to work. I am going to uh, read you a word and a definition of that word, and you're going to have to tell me if that is the real definition of the word or a fake definition of that word. And if you get it right, you get a point, and whoever has the most points wins. So we're going to go back and forth on this. Karen, I'm going to start with you. The first word and definition is, so the first word is 
FIPPLE, F-I-P-P-L-E, FIPPLE. And the defini definition is a bone at the end of a dolphin's fin, similar to a pinky. Is that a true definition or a false definition? I'm going to say balderdash on that one. That sounds too mushed together, but what do I know? I correct. That was a false definition. Well done. All right, Bridget, you're up next. One point for Karen. Uh, you're already behind, Bridget. So come on now. Uh, all right. The the next word is galactophagist. Someone who eats or subsists on milk. True or false? I think that's true. I think the the uh, yeah. I think that's true. Correct. It is true. Well done. All right. We're all tied up here. Next up, back to you, Karen. Here we go. Next one, myomancy. That's M-Y-O-M-A-N-C-Y, myomancy, a kind of divination or method of foretelling future events by the movements of mice. That's a thing? This is a real word. Um, this, is a real, this is a real word, but is that the real definition? No. And it is. That is an oh, actual thing. You could divinate the future by mice forecasting. Okay. That's a new one on me. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's possible that uh, our amazing co-op Ember actually is a myomancer. That might be why they know about this. I'll, I'll ask them after. All right. So next one is up to you, Bridget. Here we go. Next up is ozostomia ozostomia a condition in which a person is born with an extra stomach ozostomia you know it's occurring to me as we're playing this game that this is why dramaturgs exist so like as <laughs> yes. a director i don't always know it's my responsibility to know these words i i have someone on my team minute? for this um do you have to call alana brownstein right now <laughs> like, oh my gosh ah uh, <laughs> Say the word again. It is ozostomia, a condition <laughs> in which a person is born with an extra stomach. You're trying to get me on the stomia stomach thing. Um, I'm going to go with uh, that that is not a real thing. Correct. That is false. And Bridget takes the lead. Uh-oh, things are getting tight here. All right, we're going to see if Karen can come back. Two more to go here. All right, this is uh, for you, Karen, and the word is kamaleka, and that's K-A-M-A-L-A-Y-K-A, -A -A, kamaleka. And the definition is a waterproof shirt made of intestines of seal or walrus. <laughs> is that true or false? Can I have the spelling again? It is uh, K-A-M-A. L-A-Y-K-A, Kamaleka. True? Yes. That it sounds is like an true. Inuit word. It could no, I be. Think, I think Darren owns one of these. I, <laughs> don't, don't let the secrets out of the bag, Bridget. All right. Last one here for you, Bridget. This is uh, Octothorpe. 
Octothorpe, which has an E at the, spelled like it sounds with an E at the end, a, a village consisting of eight or fewer homes. Octothorpe. Huh. I mean, you're getting me on the octo, so. A village consisting of eight or fewer homes. Uh, wait, if I, where am I in the leaderboard? Uh, <laughs> it's, it is, um, uh, two to two here. And so if you get this right, it'll be three to two and you will win. Uh, uh, I think, I think that that is, I think that is false. It's the fewer thing that's bugging me. So I'm going to go with false. Correct. Yes. It is false. Perfect score. Perfect score for Bridget and Karen Perlow goes down in flames. Um, thank you both for coming on to Typecast today. I did want to give you a chance to um, pump up any projects that you have coming up. What are you working on that our audience should go check out? Aside, of course, from Jado Jihad. Karen, what do you got coming up? I am working at the brand spanking new Boston Arts Academy, Ooh. and we're doing a production of Shrek. And this space is fantabulous. It's all LED lights like everywhere. And it seem, it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. I've handed in my plot and I am seeing a designer run next week. I'm very excited for it. And I just love working with young people and having them press the buttons and help me make some choices and things. I'm doing that. When does that uh, open? Do you remember, Karen? That opens in March 16th. I think it runs for just that weekend because, you know, high school. Yep. March 16th um, <laughs> at uh, the new Boston Arts Academy building. Love that. Just by the Fenway. Yeah. yeah Fenway Park. And uh, Bridget, what's uh, what's cooking on, on your stove? Other than uh, the fact that everyone should come see Jado Jihad. Uh, I am the director of new play development at Moonbox Productions. Uh, and we just, uh, we are probably going to be announcing in the next couple of days, we just got our seven playwrights. So the I'm pretty much between now and the end of June going to be shepherding seven new works. I'm putting together the directing and dramaturg teams. And uh, then we are going to get to the Boston Center for the Arts June 22nd through the 25th. So there'll be seven productions of, of new works by local writers happening. So that's pretty much what my focus is right now. Yes, and Karen's going to be designing some of them. Yeah. I love it. New play aficionados, which of course is everybody listening to this podcast. Uh, seven new plays by local writers to check out uh, in June coming up. That's Moonbox Productions. And of course, opening on February 16th, right here in our home at 949 Commonwealth Avenue, as we've mentioned, is uh, Jado Jihad running for two weekends here. And you can get your information about that and everything about BPT on our website, bostonplaywrights.org. But for now, this is the end of this episode. Thank you so much, Bridget O'Leary and Karen Perlow for spending some time with us and talking about new plays. Today's episode and parody commercial were co-written by me and our student producer, Ember Erickson, who also edited. 
The theme music is Off to Osaka, and the final credits music is Malt Shop Bop, both by Kevin McLeod. You can find his incredibly wide-ranging music at incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H dot com. For more information about Boston Playwrights Theatre, including our season of new plays, visit bostonplaywrights.org.